What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Grind Podcast. Today, we're going to go over early season archery antelope and kind of highlight a trip that Aaron and I took with our good friend Connor Brockhouse and some of the sequence of events and, and what we learned hunting out of a out of a ground blind for our first times out in the open prairie. Uh, some of the tips and tricks and, and some of the strategies that we used for, for tackling this adventure. And then we also have a unique story about a buck that we found that uh, Connor had quite a little adventure with. So but before we get started, a base map. Um, I'm going to beat this one until you guys get it. Basemap.com forward slash MuleyFreak. Save yourself 20% off. In my opinion, it is the number one mapping software. If you're currently using or invested in another mapping software, you can transfer all your waypoints over to Basemap. 3D, some cool new features that are coming. Uh, High-speed offline maps already exist. Uh, I've compared now uh, offline maps with OnX and with Basemap, and I've found that Basemap has faster download speeds. So also you can, while you're downloading maps, you can go in and, and set waypoints, e-scout, and do all sorts of things while your maps are downloading. So there's no, no, no sense on waiting around. So without further ado, we welcome Connor. And then we also have a special guest here, Aaron. Aaron. What up? Aaron just had a new baby boy, so he, his eyes look a little glazed over, but we're happy to have Aaron on the on his first ever Grind podcast. Connor, are you there? Yes, what is up, guys? Not much, and this is your first ever podcast as well. Correct. First, but not last, Connor. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, so how, how long have you hunt, been hunting uh, antelope with your bow? Since, since I got a bow, dang near. I mean, it's been, my dad kind of got me into the whole bow hunting thing at a very young age, and I'm actually from Minnesota, and we'd always take these trips out west hunting archery antelope in the open plains, and I just kind of fell in love with it at a very young age, and when I was 12, I took my first uh, antelope doe with my bow and just immediately fell in love with it, and as have been shooting antelope every year with my bow. That's awesome. You know, what I love about your family is you, you all are just into bow hunting. You guys love it. You eat, sleep and breathe bow hunting. And it was kind of cool for Aaron and I to come out there and, and see how into it your family was. Yeah, that's awesome. It was, I mean, that's the one beautiful thing about having a family like I do. I mean, I was, I grew up doing it and now it's just become, it's a good way that we get to spend time together and yet go have fun while we're doing it yeah that's awesome yeah connor and i met up and uh, i told him that i wanted to chase some antelope with my bow and so it's before some of the obviously the more important seasons start in mule deer and elk and we scheduled this adventure and we just kind of headed out there and now last year was kind of unique because it was drought year and so yep. the goats seem to be congregated towards water so let's talk about that. You know, one of the strategies that we decided to do was put up a ground blind next to water uh, because other water sources had dried out and it seemed like they were congregated toward those main water sources. Yeah. So like last year, it was a drought year, like you said, and you know, you really got to shift your focus on those kind of years because normally I like to go at it from a spot and stock standpoint, you know, where you're running and gunning, just finding goats and trying to put a stock on them. But last year, since it was so dry, we were able to put up blinds and, you know, on those drought years, that is probably the most effective way to kill goats because no matter what those goats need water every day, you know, we're just able to sit in that blind and let them come to you instead of, you know, going out and putting on how many stocks, not knowing if it's going to work or not. Yeah, that was, at first I was really opposed to the, to the ground blind, not because I thought it was a shoe in, but because I don't know, I, I just love, and, and you'll see this in the video and the YouTube video on the hunt, but I just like going and spotting and stalking. And it was really interesting because I remember you saying to me, guarantee you're going to kill a goat if you guys just go sit that water. So, you know, Aaron and I find ourselves there on day one and we're just sweating to death in there. Like it was absolutely miserable. And our chair situation was <laughs> kind of a little <laughs> bit unique because the one I was sitting on, which was obviously the more, the more comfortable one, it was like literally just tearing as I was sitting there. So I was like, I was like, putting a lot of stress on, on my hips and inner thighs because I was like trying not to sit in the chair all the way. And it just slowly just kept tearing. And, and Aaron was sitting in the, in the mankini banana chair that literally like just squoze all the life out of your nutsack. Oh yeah. I was originally pretty mad that Eric, you know, jumped into the Taj Mahal seat and, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't soon after that, that, uh, we heard those threads being released and, uh, you know, I was pretty grateful to be in the mankini seat after that, but that, that whole sequence is probably my favorite part of the film. 
made me laugh pretty hard. But when you're sitting in those blinds, you definitely need to have some patience because I mean, you're sitting in probably, it's probably about 95 degrees out there. And in the inside of that blind, I mean, it's pushing 110, 120 degrees. So you got to be able to, you know, sit there all day and make sure you stay hydrated and whatnot. Oh yeah. That, that's one of the mistakes we made too. We didn't, did we bring one bottle of water in there? I think, I think we shared one bottle of water between <laughs> us. It's like 95 degrees in a, in a black blind. The sun's beating down on us, and I don't even think we had any snacks. Because you wake up in the morning like, oh, I'm going to go sit a blind. I'm not going to be hiking around. Man, I don't need any water. Uh, yeah, that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, we ended up, uh, you know, Eric took the mankini. We set the, we set the Taj Mahal that got torn to pieces, set it down, and... Uh, I think I crawled into a fetal position and just sat on the ground. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. Anytime something came in, I'd kind of grab the camera and try to pop up. But for the most part, I was in the fetal position. Yeah, it was <laughs> It was kind of a downhill slope right there where the blind was. So, yep. yeah, it was the most Well, that first thing. night, you guys kind of, you guys sat in the blind for quite a while, right, when you guys showed up. Yeah, like all day. How long were we in there? Oh, we had eight, been eight hours? Nine hours. Yeah, eight or, eight nine, or nine hours. And the mistake I made was like, man, I... I think wherever you hunt, you got to understand the trophy quality. And I was, and and I was like, man, if I'm going to kill a antelope, uh, a pronghorn over water, sitting in a blind, I'm going to make sure he's a big one. So, you know, we'd been sitting in there four or five hours, sweating our balls off, you know, the chair had broken at this point and here come in, you know, these seven antelope. Right. And uh, I'm like, man, there's not one in there quite big enough. I don't think. And I was like trying to will myself to like the one and I was like, yeah, I wait for something bigger. It's the first day, right? And Aaron is just absolutely kind of disgusted with me. He's like, he, he kept saying, you don't want one of those? I'm like, no. <laughs> and we let these antelope kind of go. And uh, yeah, I kind of wish I would have. I wish I would have taken one of those first antelope that came in because uh, it would have been the biggest one. In those goats, it seems they top out at around 75 inches. And you, you know, you got to be able to, shoot a Pope and young antelope up there. You can't be too picky. Whereas, you know, you go down to Arizona or New Mexico, then you can shoot 85 inch antelope, you know, all the time. It's just much different than down South. Right. And I knew they weren't as big as, you know, say your Wyoming, Arizona, New Mexico goats, but I'm like, man, day one, I want to, ah, this thing is cool sitting over a blind, but you know what? It was, it, it, it is cool because doing something you've never done before, uh, in the form of, of ground blind hunting, that was super cool. Now, you put in the legwork as far as uh, scouting and identifying spots where they were watering. So, I mean, you threw us a bone there for sure. But, I mean, we and that's probably why I, uh, I don't know, I should have shot. That and we had, what, three days, two yeah. and a half, three days to hunt. So you got to maximize your, you know, you got to take your opportunity when it comes. Oh, exactly. I knew you guys only had a couple days and that's why I, immediately recommended the water just because I knew that it was almost a hundred percent guaranteed that you'd be able to kill a goat out of there just because it was so hot out and such a dry year that they needed to be hitting that water every single day. You know, that, that was another interesting thing for me. Um, I, that, that was my first time sitting water for antelope and, uh, you know, you think, uh, you know, I'm kind of used to mule deer, high country mule deer, you know, even hunting desert mule deer, like they don't need water every day. And so, you know, being that's what I'm used to, I mean, even elk hunting, I've sat elk over water and, but they don't come in every day. And so, but it was clear, you know, clear as soon as we got there, those antelope, like that's their only water source and it's a hundred degrees and they drink, 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 drink. So that was something that was new for me. I was like, when we were first sitting in the blind, I'm like, oh geez, you know, are they going to come in today? You know, we got in there and they took off, they saw us, they took off. And uh, I was like, oh, we're never going to see him again. But sure enough, I mean, within a couple hours or a couple small bucks, and then that group of seven that Eric talked about came in. So, I mean, it was very effective because of the drought. I mean, they water every day there. Yeah. And I think I was kind of like skeptical because I saw antelope out in the field. And I'm like, here I am sitting in this water waiting for these antelope to come in. They're not even interested in coming in. They're sitting out in the field. <laughs> and so, you know, we could, we could see antelope grazing all day. Then they'd bed down. They'd bed down out in the field. And I'd already passed those seven that came in. So I was like, screw it. I'm going to spot and stock. Well, even for me, it was all a new experience as far as the whole water thing. Because normally, if I can choose, I'm obviously going to spot and stock. And just because it was such a dry year, that's when we decided to do the whole water setup. But 
I mean, I personally have never killed an antelope over water just because the patience thing. I mean, I can't just sit there and watch something come to me. I like to be, you know, out and about running gun going after them. And so it all was just a whole new experience for me. And I had actually planned on shooting to go over water this last year, just because I knew it was going to be so effective. And then I ended up shooting that one spot in stock, but I knew if it came down to it, I was going to be sitting in water as well. Yeah. So I get out of the blind. I've, I've, we've absolutely had it right. The chair got hammered. Aaron's been sitting on the ground and then we'd actually swap back and forth between the banana, uh, the banana bikini chair and then sitting on the ground. Cause one of us would just get sick. sick of it. <laughs> so anyway, I, I finally said, screw it. And I hopped out of the blind. And I was like, I'm just going to hike West. So I just started hiking West and lo and behold, up over the Ridge, these goats are coming into us. I'm like, no way. Like within like, five minutes of leaving the blind. We were yeah, like a hundred yards from the blind <laughs> <laughs> and then we were into goats. And so these goats just come running right at us. Well, we'll kind of sort of walking and then they discovered we were there. Then they sort of kind of trot at us. I ranged the one goat at 65, but he, I don't know, he ran for a ways and I didn't rearrange him. I thought just aim low and shot one over his back and just to the right. So I'm like, man, that kind of got the jitters out of me. I got out of the blind I was having some fun and then I miss him and the crazy little buggers, they came running right back at us. Aaron's like, Eric, Eric, they're coming back. I'm like, what? I turn around. They're literally sprinting right at us. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, what are these things doing? And uh, they got to within, I don't know, 70, 80. I went to draw my bow and then they took off again. So it was the excitement was short lived. Yeah, I've never seen anything quite like that before. Eric's Eric's looking at me and like t- taking a deep breath because he just missed. It was exciting. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> they're literally sprinting right at us right now. That was pretty crazy. Those antelope, the crazy thing about them is they're such a curious animal. I mean, I've had countless goats where I've shot or, you know, spooked them a little bit and I'll just flicker my hat or something like a lot of people use a white flag and just kind of flicker it just because they're so curious and they'll actually come back into range. And I've killed one goat doing that just because they're so curious. Yeah, definitely learned that they're curious little buggers, which is funny because sometimes they see you from three miles away and boom, they're gone. So it's funny that, you know, sometimes they they're so dumb at the same time. (laughs) Right. Right. Unbelievable eyes though. Oh yeah. Their, their, their vision is, uh, it's insane. I mean, that's how a lot of the times how I get hung up is I'll be stalking in on a good goat. And I mean, it's like they literally have eyes in the back of their head. I'll go up to get a range when they're 90 yards away and they'll catch any little movement. Like it's nothing. Yeah. You got to respect them that way. Their eyes are incredible. Yeah. So we, you know, we, we're walking back to the truck. We meet up with you obviously. And we, we tell you about some of our excitement and you literally like, yeah, we killed four goats today. And we're like, what? <laughs> Every single one of you had arrowed a goat by the time that we got back. I mean, if I would have just shot that one, we would have had five goats. In day. <laughs> yeah. I've never, I've never experienced anything like that, man. It was absolutely the most unreal six hours of hunting I've ever been a part of. I mean, it was just one after another. We were shooting goats. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty crazy. And I was like, no way. And then I, you know, then, then we went, we went to bed that night, woke up the next morning and we got on some stocks. We were stocking goats and also in ag and rolling hills and open prairie. And we were just getting our butts handed to us, spotting us and, and they're running or they're running before we even come up over the ridge or we'd pull the truck and they had seen the truck three miles away and they're already running. I'm like, Oh boy. And you kept saying, dude, it's tough spotting and stocking out here. I'm like, ah, that's okay. Boy. Yeah. It was tough. Yeah, that's like, that's how it is every year. I mean, normally on an average year, I'll go on 50 to 100 stocks before something finally comes together. That's why this last year when every single stock that we went on, we were killing a goat. We're just like, what the heck is happening here? <laughs> yeah, wild. So anyway, we're kind of spotting around and and um, I was a little, I'd, I'd go on these stocks a little bit gingerly because you guys were just talking about all these rattlesnakes and you know it was in this it was really dry and it was super hot and i'm like these snakes have got to be out right now and so i was just like looking everywhere i've never been worried about rattlesnakes when i'm stalking but and then we found that dead one on the road i'm like oh gosh i don't want to run into rattlesnakes thing was so big around it, unbelievable and then i ended up after we we saw the one in the road 
I, I Googled them. You told me, Connor, that they were prairie rattlesnakes. And it's like, they're top 10 in North America, most venomous snakes. I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I was like, and we've just been cruising around and that grass is knee high. Like you're never going to be able to see them. Yeah. Oh was, yeah. No, we, we've had, we've had a couple run-ins with them and most of the time, you know, they'll let you know that they're there by rattling at you. And boy, does that scare the crap out of you the first time you hear that you're just walking along and all of a sudden two feet below, you got one striking up at you and you're just like, geez. So then I've actually worn some snake boots or snake chaps before just to stay on the cautious side of things. You ever had one strike at you? No, I've, I've had them just rattle at me before. I've never had one physically strike, but I just threw on some snake boots and chaps just to be, you know, cautious. Cause those things, like you said, they're so venomous. I mean, if you don't have the hospital nearby and you get, if, and one strikes you, you're kind of, you gotta, you gotta get there quick. You, now you guys were telling stories of people that, you know, have been hit by them. What, what happens when you get hit by them? Like what, what are the stories you've kind of heard? So I know I talked to a gentleman last year out antelope hunting and he was just walking along. And a lot of the times the younger ones won't, um, won't even rattle at all because they don't really know how to. And the younger, the younger ones are the most dangerous because if they hit you, they'll release all the venom they have into you just because they're so immature and young, they don't know how to control it. And this, this gentleman that I spoke to out antelope hunting, he actually uh, had one strike at him and get inside just the first layer of his skin. And luckily he had a nice pair of sicker pants on. So I was able to stop a lot of it, but he immediately ran to the um, emergency room and uh, cause he was, you know, freaking out to get checked out. And luckily that younger snake had no venom left in it because it had obviously, you know, went after a mouse or something and released all of its venom into something else. But that was a close call for that guy. Oh, wow. That'd be one I want to get by, get bit by. Yeah, no. I could imagine just like crawling on my hands and knees and just having one get me right in the sack or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want that to happen. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, it's a good thing I, I, I'm done pretty much having kids because that, that would just ruin your life. <laughs> yeah, no that, more kids for you. You imagine your unit swollen up so big it fell off. <laughs> Dude, I, I remember I Googled some pictures of some of those. Of per- units swollen up? No, no, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. Easy. Prairie rattlesnake bites, and they were pretty nasty. And it said even some like severe ones that people lost their limbs or whatever. It, uh, didn't look fun. Imagine getting hit on the hand while you're, you know, you'd never be able to pull pull a bow back again potentially. Oh no, yeah, I know, I know a couple people who have been struck by them like on their hand, and it never recovers from it. I mean, the nerve damage when that happens is so bad that you aren't able to work that hand well Jeez. at all. Imagine, <laughs> imagine getting bit on a snozz. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> your nose, your nose never being able to work again, or swollen up so big or falling off. <laughs> Jeez, I, I wouldn't mind that if I it meant I had to sit in the blind with you. <laughs> Dude, that's another thing we didn't talk about is Eric's gas while in the blind. 115 degrees, no airflow, and he's just got the worst <laughs> gas. Oh, my gosh. I'm surprised you didn't just come running out of the blind. There's oh, no way I, I could have stayed I about did about 15 times. <laughs> yeah, he kept threatening me to, and I'm like, just open up the window. <laughs> yeah, that was bad. I wouldn't mind a snake biting the schnoz. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit more about the strategy so on a drought year something that can be super effective is identifying um identifying watering spots you can do that with satellite gps google google earth or even you know something like base map where you can go identify uh, these watering holes mark them on the map with your smart markers but one thing about it is in a drought year you might be doing a lot of legwork because a lot of those could be dried out so I mean, you'd have to do a little bit of scouting in, in advance. Luckily, that was that was an ag water that we were kind of sitting over, so that was beneficial. But I mean, I mean more of those natural water sources. If you were to identify some on Google Earth or Base Map, I'd imagine a lot of them are dried out. Yep, yep. So like you were just saying there, I used Base Map, you know, early on in that late July, early August, and identified a water source and would go up to it. And like you said, a lot of, a lot of them were dried out. Luckily for us, the water source that we were using was for the cattle. So obviously it was a, it wasn't a natural one. And, uh, but other than that, then all the natural ones on a drought year will most likely be dried up. Right. So what do you do on a a wet year? Spot and stock? 
do yeah. a little more scouting and see which, which water sources they like best? Yeah, I see. The problem is on a wet year, you'll have different water sources within three quarters of a mile of each other. So it's really hard to pinpoint the exact location that they're hitting because you'll watch those goats on a wet year and they'll just, they have so much of it. They don't care where they go. They'll just go to this place the one day. And then the next day they'll be a mile away hitting a different water source. So it's really tough to pinpoint, you know, their pattern on a wet year like, like that. Gotcha. Yeah, that's awesome. So Gunner Butts handed to us a spot in stocking. We decided it was our last day. Again, we only had two and a half days to hunt. We hit the blind again, and I was just going to let any buck have it. So, you know, we're sitting there for, I don't know, a couple hours. We did upgrade our chairs. Connor, you hooked us up with some some chairs that were a little bit nicer, and Aaron and I were just on cloud nine because we were both just sitting on chairs. <laughs> Big upgrade. <laughs> and this this little this little buck, he couldn't have been more than a two, three-year-old buck. He comes waltzing in. He circles around. He was smart enough to, to to circle the entire water source. Comes up over the top, goes in there at about twenty eight yards, and I just let him have it with the little sever one one point five. He ran a little ways, sat down, ran a little another little ways, and then uh, we went and went and found him and, and took care of him. But man, it, going from sitting in a ground blind to spotting and stalking, then back to sitting, I'll tell you this: I appreciated that buck so much more killing him on the very last day in a ground blind because here i here i came in thinking oh, i don't want to kill one sitting in a blind you know that's not fun and then went passed one up in the blind went spotting the stock got my butt kicked and then went back to the blind and i was just pumped man that's an accomplishment even out of a blind it was so neat first first buck with a bow too right first antelope buck with yeah. a bow yeah yeah, with your with the limited days you guys had, that was definitely your best bet is just sitting over that water because during when you're spotting stocking, you need to make sure you have a lot of days because it usually does take a lot of stocks. But for the most part, you know, something will eventually come together. And luckily for you guys, we have that water source that is just always a good backup to go to. Yeah, that was awesome. But we had one thing that kind of kept distracting us. A few things, actually. And they're coming in the field and passing the blind every day. And it, they were mule deer, obviously. We are muley freak, and we like mule deer. And so we saw those, this big buck with a, was it split on his G3? Yep, yep, split off of a his nice G3. A nice little split and on his G3, big framey sucker. And I remember going back to you and saying, hey, have you seen that buck? You're like, oh, yeah, he's, he's, number, he's number one on my hit list. And uh, I want to hear about the adventure of this buck. Yeah, so this this is a long story here. This all started back um, late July when is when Caden and I, my little brother, first laid eyes on this buck. And he was with a bunch of other bucks out in that same exact field where you guys harvested your antelope there. And, uh, you know, I laid eyes on him and immediately fell in love with this deer. Uh, Caden came up with the nickname Tony, and it just immediately stuck. So for the next multiple weeks, I every chance I got, I was, I was out looking for that buck. And, you know, due to work, I usually only had weekends, but I would go up on top of that hill, throw up the spotter and just always wanted to see what this deer was doing because I knew I wanted to go after him when season came along. So, you know, we, I scouted him hard up until you guys got there and I kind of had an idea of what he was doing. And then when you guys got there is when I really just started going off on this deer, making sure I was ready when the moment came. So I threw up some trail cameras, got a couple pictures of him and, um, kind of got a pattern down better because the way that country set up up there in Northern, Northern South Dakota is I was looking, I was, you know, there's that alfalfa field there. And then there's those real cut banks off on the West side. And it was perfect for the, all those bucks because, you know, they can go hide in that cover for the whole day and then still be able to come out and have this perfect alfalfa that they can eat on f during the night. And, uh, so I kind of got the pattern down where they're going in and out of, and just kind of getting a game plan because opener was September 1st. And this, it was about late August, right after you guys had left when I started, uh, you know, getting this pattern down there and, uh, due to work, I wasn't able to, uh, be out there opening day. I think opening day was like on a Tuesday. So 
it was uh, September 5th is when I was able to get up there. September 4th, one of the two, it was a Friday night. And I went up there Friday night and watched the deer, watched Tony and a couple other bucks come out in the same exact spot I've been watching for the past two weeks. And I was just starting to get pumped up knowing, you know, this might really happen tomorrow morning. And the wind was looking good and I was getting pumped up. I went to bed that night, probably didn't sleep, but two hours and woke up to just an absolute horrible wind. The just it couldn't have asked for a worse wind. And when it comes to those big mature mule deer bucks, the wind is something I never mess with. If the wind is bad, I am not going in because my, you know, you could bump that deer and they could run two miles. You know, they're in that stage there when their velvet's coming off and they're just not really sure what they're doing. And if you bump them, they could run off and you can never see them again. So I just wanted to stay cautious and make sure I was in the clear. So I actually went goose hunting. It was September 6th when that wind was bad. I went goose hunting that morning and shot some geese and it was just kind of like whatever and went back that night and watched him come out into the same exact spot because these bucks early morning, they'd come out into the field and they would eat and go back to their bedding. And then during the night, they'd come back out again to get some food. So the biggest thing you're doing here is patterning them. Um, oh, yes. You're watching them, putting in the time, learning their behavior obviously you don't want to chance them due to the wind because you don't want to screw up that pattern. Yeah. And that's, that's the nice thing about where I live. I'm only a couple hours from that spot. So it allows me to put in that legwork knowing where these deer are coming in and out of that. That way, when it comes down to it, I am on my A game ready to kill this buck. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Went goose hunting, shot some, shot some geese and then back at him. Yep. Yep. Back at it. Watched him come out that night. And then, uh, the wind was still bad. So then I went back to the white house there and went to bed, only slept a couple hours that night as well. And woke up Sunday morning to just a perfect wind, Northwest wind. And I was like, all right, it's game on. So I went in there. I got out to that alfalfa field about probably five o'clock in the morning. Cause I waited up there for an hour or so until it was daylight. And right at daybreak, I saw Tony and it was two other of, two other bucks with him out in the field. And for some reason that morning, there was not all, not all the bucks were out there. Cause normally there was a, around a dozen, a batch or group of a dozen bucks. And for some reason that Sunday morning, it was just Tony and two other bucks. Really? So, yep. Yep. Which I thought was really weird. That is weird. Cause we saw that group of bucks. Aaron and I saw those group of bucks come in, flood the field every morning. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it was just because, you know, in that transition, when they're starting to lose their velvet, I couldn't tell you, but it, I thought it was odd, but I was just happy that, you know, Tony was the one that happened to be out there. So then I, um, kind of swung around, made a loop and, uh, got within about 250 yards of him and the two other bucks. And it was just, you know, that alfalfa there, alfalfa field there was super flat. So it was, it's, you know, it's kind of tough to make a move on them unless they get into those drainages. So I just kind of waited it out until, uh, it was probably around eight o'clock in the morning when they started feeding off the alfalfa field there. And that's when I just started getting behind them and tailing them. I guess I do it a lot different than other people. When it comes to uh, mule deer hunting, I like to be within two to 300 yards of these bucks all morning long. That way, when they do decide to bed down, I'm in, I'm in the bedroom. I'm ready to go. Some other people like sitting a mile away watching them, but there's so much stuff that can happen from a mile away when you do decide to go make that stock. I mean, the landscape will change and it's just, it makes it a lot tougher than it should be. So with him, I just stayed two, two, 300 yards behind them and just kept sneaking. Every time they'd move, I'd move. Cause I knew within the half hour, they were going to be bedding down because it was supposed to be really hot that day. So they went down into this little, uh, drainage ditch. And that's when I could tell that they're getting ready to bed down. There was a pretty shaded edge right alongside there. And so I got down on my belly and got in within a hundred yards of him. And I'm just kind of watching. So you're down in that dip then, and they're kind of on the, on, on a slope or kind of paint a picture for us they they were actually in the ditch with me as well so i was in the ditch you know in that two foot tall grass and they were down there as well just because the way that ditch system or drainage system works is it all runs out into the big bluff country where there's you know all the huge cut banks so i knew they were falling that and going to make their way there okay and it was right before they were getting ready to go into the rough country to bed down. And I got within a hundred yards cause I knew it was going to be go time soon and they were going to be bedding down and they started walking off uh, and they're going around this ledge, the, the shaded ledge where they're going to bed down for the day. And I lost all my wind. 
could, I mean, there wasn't a stitch wind out and it's, it's noisy. It was a dry year and it was noisy out. So I actually had to wait on my belly for about, Oh, it was, it was probably about an hour and a half that I had to wait because that I did not want to chance it because there was no wind. And I knew if I got inside 50 yards that they were going to hear me. So I just waited for that wind to pick up and it finally picked up and I started working my way in where I'd last seen him go around the ledge and I get, and I keep in mind, I have to be belly crawling this whole time because the grass now is like six inches and there's a couple sagebrush around me, but not much to deal with. So I just had to slowly slither along and I get to where I'd last seen them and I look down right in front of me and see an ear flicker of one of the bucks, not but 20 yards from me. Oh, 20 yards. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I was close. And, uh, so then I, I actually got on my knees. So I'm like on top of this embankment and they're down below me. But at this point I had not seen Tony. I'd only seen the one buck mm-hmm. and I got, I got up on my knees to get a better look to see if I could see Tony bedded down next to this other deer that I just caught the flicker of the ear of. And I look off to my left and I'm not even shitting you here. He was 20 yards away. Looking at you. No, he was on his feet feeding, which I thought was super, super weird because all these other, or the two other bucks were just chilling. They're bedded down for the day. They're ready to take a nap. And Tony's just 20 yards to my left. You're still feeding. Broadside? uh, Yes. At this point he was broadside. 20 yards broadside. Yes. But he's walking. He's walking. So then- so then I slowly get back down kind of onto my belly, but I was just kind of leaned over that way. He wouldn't see me. I grabbed my range finder, come up and range him at 28 yards and put my range finder back down and he's walking away hard. And, um, but so then I grabbed my bow, I already had an arrow knocked and everything come back to full draw as he's walking away and he stops. And I guessed him right at about, anywhere from 38 to 40 yards just due to how much he was walking uh-huh. come back come back to full draw center my pin and he was quartering super hard away but i knew i could slip that arrow in in front of that back quarter and i settle my pin and shoot and watch my arrow just go perfectly right where i was aiming i was able to slip it right in front of that back quarter and i watched the arrow just bury right up into him and he takes off running blood starts gushing out immediately and i'm just freaking stoked i'm waiting for this giant buck to just topple over there 40 yards in front of me and he ends up running up on the hill it gets to about 150 yards away from me and he's just sitting there and i can see blood coming out of the side where i hit him but he's not acting like he's you know gonna topple over so i just kind of sit back and watch him watch him and he stays there for about five minutes and at this point i was starting to get worried i'm like all right something's not right here and uh what broadhead just, tell us about your setup first draw length okay so your arrow yes uh, so i was shooting um i shoot a Botech realm ss and i was shooting uh victory arrows the vaps there and i had a um nap kill zone it's an expandable it's a two inch broadhead and i've I've used that broadhead ever since I started bow hunting. It's never failed me once. So I had, you know, I had trust in my equipment and I was shooting right around 65, 68 pounds somewhere in there. So, you know, those expandables work flawlessly. Usually when you're pulling a little higher poundage, you can just rip through whatever you're shooting at. So I, I, I had hundred percent confidence in my gear. And then after shooting that buck, when he was just standing out there, that, then I started to question, you know, what's going on here. Did I, did I not, was did my broadhead fail or did I do something? So I was just, all these things are running through my mind and the buck Tony actually starts running and right. Like five minutes after I'd hit him, you know, I'd been watching him. That's going to be a sick feeling, huh? Oh Oh my gosh. I had never felt so sick in my life. So I watched this buck run about 200 yards over the hill. And you know, one, I guess this is maybe just me personally, but if I shoot a deer and hit it, I always want to keep eyes on him. So right when I lost eyes on him, I ran to the biggest hill I could find, which was about 300 yards to the east of me, get up on that hill and lay eyes on him again. But this time he's about three quarters of a mile away, heading into this rough country. Mm. And it's, it's a big bull is what it is with a bunch of breaks down in the middle. Is he limping or is he acting like he's sick? Is his ears back? Are they drooping? Like you what know, kind of, he, what kind of body language are you seeing from him? 
the only thing I could see was the blood on the, on his side. Other than that, he had, he had his ears back a little bit, but wasn't limping. He was running just fine. And at this point I'm like, all right, maybe he's just still running off a general adrenaline, but I, you know, I was, I was worried that I had hit him bad and I watched him go into there. And he, when he went into that drainage bottom in that big Canyon there, he was, he started acting a little hurt. He was slowing down, just slowly walking. I'm like, all right, this is, this is what we like to see. Maybe he's going to go bed down in there. So I set up the spotter then and start watching and he never comes out. There was only two exits into this um, little Canyon and I watch it for about two hours and nothing comes out. And I'm like, all right, he's in there. He's bedded up. He's probably going to die in there if we just give him some time. So I end up watching that for another hour or so. And then I call up my older brother and a good buddy of mine. And um, I'm like, I explained the situation. I'm like, I hit Tony and everyone knew of Tony, all my family members, all my buddies, just because I couldn't keep my mind off this deer. So they start freaking out and they're like, all right, we'll be there in a half an hour. So I meet them back at our little white house up there and we assess a game plan and I call up my dad and he's like, yeah, at least give him, you know, six to 10 hours just to make sure that if he is in there, he's going to die. Cause at this point I'm thinking maybe I didn't catch anything you know, any of the goodies, but maybe I caught some guts and that might, that might do the trick, you know, if he beds down in there. So Cody and I, and my buddy, we all head up to the mountain or to that little hill where I'd last been watching him. And then we made up a game plan to, you know, surround the whole little bowl that we la- that I last saw him go into and just slowly work our way in there, just constantly glassing, you know, making sure that we weren't missing anything. So we go in there, la di da da we look around, nothing. And at this point, I'm like, all right, what's going on here? There's, I watched this. He did not come out. Well, somehow during the whole thing, he was able to slip out on a path that I didn't even know was there, which was just to the south of it, which I could not see from the hill I was on. And, well, at this point, I guess we still thought he might be in there. So we searched until dark. So what kind of blood did nothing. you have over there once you got over there? You know, I found one little drop of blood and just it's during those dry years, it's super hard to see in that sage country. It's super hard to see the blood. So I found one drop where I last saw him go into the drainage and then nothing. So I was, yeah, I was really worried at this point and I didn't find the arrow and I'm like, all right, something bad is happening. So we look until dark, nothing. And I'm just sick to my stomach. I'm like, what am I going to do? But since we had not found the arrow yet, I'm like, well, I'm going to come back during dark and look for my Luminoc because I had a Luminoc on and maybe the arrow might still be in him and I can find the Luminoc and maybe find him. So I get up on a, the biggest hill I could find and just started glass and then ended up looking until like two o'clock in the morning with no, no sign of anything. And uh, so then, you know, we're just all down in a mood and I had to go back to work that the next day. So I fly back up to rapid and, um, start, go, go to work and have my older brother who lives up there, Cody, and had him look around for it. And he found nothing, had neighbors looking around for it. He, they couldn't find anything. And I'm just, at this point, I was just so sick. I didn't even know what to do because I was so in love with this deer and now I can't find him. And I started blaming myself, you know, because I made a bad shot and this and that. So then Friday came along and, uh, that next Friday and I go out there and start looking for him, spent the whole weekend looking for him. Nothing. Couldn't find anything Had all my whole family out there, all my buddies, you know, we just couldn't find anything. Didn't find a trace of blood, nothing. There's no sign of him. So then I started thinking maybe he's dead out on the prairie and we'll never find this deer. And I just, I was looking for birds, looking for any sign of anything. And there was just nothing. So tell us a little bit more about the deer before we go forward. Let's, uh, have we talked about, we've talked about how he had a split G3, but what's his frame like? How big do you think he is? Tell us why you're so in love with this deer. Uh, so this, this deer is, I mean, his frame is unbelievable. It's one of the bigger typicals I've seen. And those mule deer usually top out at 180 mark. I mean, granted you can shoot 200 inch deer, but it's not, not, not a state I would pick to go shoot a 200 inch mule deer. So this buck, I'm like, just absolutely in love with. He was super tall on his one side. He was a perfect typical with big split twos and huge fronts. And then on his other side, 
he was had a one tall G2, and then he had his G3 and had that split off his G3, and then he had a G, G4 coming out. So he's kind of a goofier-looking buck, but, I mean, he had big beams on him probably and 28 inches, 30 inches wide right around there. So that's why I was in love with this deer. I mean, up there, and just you usually don't find deer like that. Right. So that's why, I mean, I was just absolutely obsessed over this deer and that's what just started the whole thing on why I wanted to kill him so bad. Awesome. Okay. So you looked around for him, didn't find him the next weekend. What, what are the next steps that you took? Did you write him off as dead? Did you think maybe he was still alive? I mean, what was going through your head? Yeah. So at this point I had kind of wrote him off as this deer's dead on on the prairie and I'm never going to get to lay my hands on him. And I was, I was just sick. I mean, you you hate to do that. You hate to hit a deer like that, and not find it, you know, world-class meal deer. And, uh, so I had to go back to work and came back out the following weekend. And this is when I kind of started, it was dad and I were just sitting there talking and we, we decided, you know what, let's go, let's, let's move on. Let's go look for something else. We'd spent two weeks of searching and calling around and no sign of Tony at all. So dad and I made up a game plan. Let's just split up. Let's go find another mature deer and see if we can, you know, kill him. I had, I'd wrote Tony off my list as much as I hated to say it. He was, he was off my list. So I go to a piece of public about five miles from where I had hit Tony going in there to look for a new deer to try to, you know, lay my hands on. So I get into this new piece of public. It was about a mile and a half walk back in there. I'd never been in there before get up on this big old big butte and uh immediately just throw the spotter up start looking around saw some does saw one little buck nothing you know too extraordinary and it was middle of the day so i just i sat back and i actually took a nap for about an hour and wake up wake up from my nap and i'm tired and go back to glass and then i was actually I, i just was using my binoculars just scanning around right after i woke up and i see a buck about oh two and a half miles away through my little 10 power binos. I'm like, Oh geez, that looks good. So I whipped the spot around right up on him, And I mean, instantly within a split second knew it was Tony. And oh at this my point, I'm gosh, that's insane. Dude, that is dude, at this, that's at this point. I, yeah, I couldn't even, I couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, I was, I'm literally five miles away from where I'd hit him, And I'm looking at him through my spotter, just still alive acting perfectly fine and i was i actually called you eric i tried I remember. calling you when i yeah when i when i found him i tried calling you and uh i called up a couple buddies and i'm like all right guys you're not gonna believe this but i just laid eyes back on tony and they're like what you know this and that and so then i got, get done talking to my buddies in probably about a 10 minute span and i was like then that's when it's set in. I'm like, all right, I need to go in and finish what I have started. I need to make sure I kill this deer right now. So I make up a quick game plan and it was normally, I like to take up, take my time that way. I don't screw up stuff. But I mean, this game plan came up within like two minutes and it was like a three mile stock that I was going to have to make. So I just had a, I made up a quick game plan and grabbed my bow and just started hauling and covered that three miles in not, like not much time at all because he was bedded down, but I knew he wasn't going to stay bedded because it was getting to be that time of night where they're going to get up and start feeding. So I, uh, make my three mile loop around and come up on and how I do it, I guess, just a quick little tip here is before I went on that stock, I take pictures through my spotter of where the deer are, because when you get around on the backside of a, a new piece of ground that you've never been on, it always looks different. So that's why I like to take pictures on my cell phone just to give me a good idea on where this deer is once I do get around on the backside. So I get around to where I think I'm good and check my phone and see that, Oh yeah, I'm getting close. I had actually picked out from two and a half miles away. I'd picked out the biggest sagebrush I could find. And that was my landmark. And I get up to that sagebrush where I had picked him out at. And I knew he was about anywhere from 40 to 60 yards on the other side of that. So I peek up, peek my head up through the sagebrush and sure enough, there he is looking in my direction about 70 yards away. And, and I just immediately drop back down behind the sagebrush and just a bunch of thoughts start rolling through my head. Do I, do I just guess the range and try to shoot or do I sit back and hope that he didn't see me and he was just happened to be looking in my direction when I popped up. So I'm sitting there and about a minute went by and I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm just going to 
pray that he's still there and I'm just going to get down and crawl in a little closer and hopefully he's still there and I can get a shot. So I crawl for about 10 minutes, not knowing if he busted me or if he's still there. Uh And I crawl to where I knew he had to be close if he was still there. And sure enough, I peek up and there he is 25 yards away Wow! and feeding, not even looking at me feeding and perfectly broadside. So I grab my range finder pop up and right as I'm ranging him at this point in time is when I look in my original arrow from two weeks earlier was still in him. Are you and, serious? You're yeah, kidding dude. me. Oh so my I was, gosh. Yeah. And I was like, what the heck? Just mind blown by this. And so then I just, you know, kind of caught that? myself. How is that in him still? I see what, so where I hit him, this is kind of a crazy story. So this is why the, this is why he didn't die. We'll just dive into this real quick. So when I shot him that first time when he was angling hard away, when I shot my, since I was shooting that kill zone, that expandable, right as my arrow hit on the backside of his rib cage, it actually deflected off of his rib cage, went in between his rib cage and hide and slid all the way up to his shoulder blade. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the arrow was stuck in a shoulder blade that, and it just didn't hit anything while but it was it like all flat against his body. Yep. After when I, when I, when I was looking at the arrow, you could see where it was just laying perfectly flat up against his body, right under his hide. Holy crap. So were you just seeing the fletching sticking out? Yep. That's all I could see was just these big old white fletchings that I had on my arrow. That's insane. So it kind of, it kind of caught me off guard for a second, but then I just ranged him and I ended up being 28 yards, range him, put my range finder down, come back to full draw. He has no idea I'm there just feeding, looking away shoot and just smoke him just i mean perfectly placed shot he doesn't even make it 20 yards and topples over and i was at this point i mean i just start freaking out i start facetiming buddies telling them the story on this thing and i just i couldn't believe my own eyes when i he, can't you know when, yeah it was That's it was insane. i can't believe that arrow just stayed straight against his body just stayed under his heart. oh yeah that's crazy well I had, I had never had any problems with those nap kill zones before. And after that experience, I will never shoot him again because that, that first shot I put on him was not a bad shot. I was, it was honestly a perfectly placed shot, maybe just about a half inch too high. But when it, when it first went in, since it was at such a quarter, you know, quartering away when that arrow first went in, it deflected off that rib there and just slid all the way up. That's crazy. I mean, the more I bow hunt, the more I realize like the most insane things happen and everything has to go perfectly to kill a buck, yep. like, or to kill anything with your bow. It has to go perfectly. Like just oh, yes. absolutely perfect or more else things it doesn't go wrong than go right. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. The stars have to align when it comes to bow hunting. You got to make sure that you're just ready to go. And the biggest thing is you just know, know your gear, know that you are a hundred percent you know, you feel comfortable using whatever you're going to be using. Yeah. But even then season. sometimes it doesn't do what it's supposed to, or what you've, you know, or what it's oh, done yeah, well I mean, in the past. It hasn't worked. And uh, I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. It's always a learning curve. Every time, every season I learn so much from bow hunting. That's why I think I love it so much. Yeah. I mean, so I had an experience just quickly. I mean, on topic here, but a little different story. I, I use this this broadhead, I won't say the name, but I used a broadhead elk hunting when I drew a tag here in Utah. And I hit, I hit a bull. He kind of dipped on me and he threw his shoulder blade back. And that, that broadhead didn't get any penetration. It just sit there and flapped. Like I should have smoked him. There's no reason Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have smoked him. And, you know, five days later on the last day of the hunt, I, I shoot a, a bull super hard quartering to me, like at last light. And it went through ribs, everything killed him, you know, within 150 yards, same broadhead, same, same everything, but it didn't perform the one time and it performed the, uh-huh. the other time. It's, it's just, you know, there's so much to bow hunting, you know, different parts of the animal are shaped different and they have different bone density. And it, yeah, that's what makes bow hunting so difficult. Oh, exactly. Like you said, just so much stuff can go wrong all the time. You just gotta, you gotta be cautious of what you're doing. That's for sure. Yeah, man. And, but, but kudos to you for sticking with it and not giving up. And I, I know that you kind of got lucky there because you're, you'd moved on to a different deer, but the fact that 
you ran into him on a piece of public five miles away. That's absolutely insane. It just goes to show that it's not, it's never over. <laughs> Dude, it, it, it was, it was a straight miracle. I mean, like you just said there that it just goes to show, never give up on something. I mean, it, it changed. I was from my lowest of lowest to my highest of highs in about, you know, an hour di- difference in time. Yeah. It's being able to manage and, and, uh, mitigate all that negativity and depression and, and being able to keep going. Cause you just want to quit, right? You're like, man, why do I even bow hunter? Why do I even hunt? This happened and this happened, this happened. It didn't go my way. Like I'm done. Like it's easy to do that, mm-hmm. but you've got to keep a positive oh, yeah. mental attitude, which is easier said than done because you're just like, man, I'm just wasting my time here. Like I'm just giving <laughs> up. Like I'm so depressed. I already ruined a buck's life and you know, but mm-hmm. you, you kept at it. You stayed with it. You were able to fight off some of that negativity and, and push yeah, through. man, you know, probably the worst negativity I had was just knowing that I just wounded a world-class meal deer and no one will ever find him. You know, I, I, thought I would never find him. And I just, it put me into a stage where the, all bow hunters face. If, if you do bow hunt, you'll face it. And it's just, you, you feel sick. You, there's no other right. way I can explain it other than just, you feel sick on, on what you've done, you know, that buck. And luckily for me, you know, I was able to come out on top, but you just, it, it's, it's a, it is hard, but when it comes together, man, there's nothing else like there's nothing better. There's nothing better when it comes together. Not and, and and the thing is, the challenges that you experienced on this hunt, look what it taught you. It taught you to never give up. I mean, if if you hit another one in the future, I can guarantee you that you're going to push in, until there's nothing to push anymore. Oh, exactly. So and and the thing is about bow hunting and this story of you almost losing this buck, it's not if it's going to happen to you, it but it's when. So, yep. um, it, it, it's going to happen, but Hey, listen, man, we, we had a lot of fun having you on this podcast. We had a lot of fun, um, experience in a new type of bow hunting with you in, uh, chasing, uh, prairie goats as, as, as we're calling this. And if, if you haven't check out the episode, it's a phenomenal YouTube video and, and we go and we hang out with Connor and we, we chase antelope with our bow. We got our butts handed to us, uh, and, but ultimately prevailed in the end. And, and we, we had a lot of fun looking at, at your buck come to the field every day because that was an absolutely phenomenal buck. And it's a phenomenal story how it all came together in the end. Way to not give up, man. Yeah, man, that was, that's awesome. Thanks for having me on. You know, I appreciate you guys chatting with you guys and, Hope you guys like the story, but I, I'm just glad it all came out and uh, couldn't be happier with my buck. That's for sure. And I look forward to hunting with you guys in the near future. Oh, heck yeah, man. Uh, we're, we're excited. To, in fact, we've already started talking about mule deer and, and uh, if there's any more shooters out there. So, uh, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> mule deer is yeah. always on our mind. Oh yeah, for sure. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Connor. Yeah. Yeah. Have a good day. All right. We'll see you. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. Be sure to subscribe rate and review. Uh, Listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you want to listen to us. You can also find us on the website. Um, Stay tuned and uh, we look forward to having you on the next one. And just remember, this is part one episode of the Send It series. You can check out this antelope hunt with Connor, me and Aaron and uh, the adventure that was Prairie Goat. So check it out. Thanks guys.